Well, if you turn in your Bibles to Judges 13, <clears throat> you will find the story of Samson. And the story of Samson, we all know this long-haired, big, muscular guy, right? At least that's what we got in Sunday school. Pictures of this hulking, massively ripped, huge bodybuilder. Yet interestingly enough, they couldn't figure out the source of his strength and they had to use Delilah to get at it. So it wasn't quite as obvious as our Sunday school pictures have made it out to be. We'll get there. <clears throat> have you ever gone to a movie with really high expectations only to be wildly disappointed? Yeah. Oftentimes. I, I remember uh, back in, I think it was around... 1990, I was at music school, so maybe 92, 93. Uh, friends and I, we were going to go see this movie, and somebody had heard something about it. It was this, like, it was this kind of fun family camping trip thing, and uh, she didn't know much about it, but she heard it was a great movie, really, you know, engaging. Turned out to be Cape Fear. I think about 20 minutes in, we went, what did we get ourselves into? And we left, and... Here we are, a bunch of us Christians in the parking lot praying, oh Lord, please take those, those images from our minds. That was something else. It was a brutal movie. Had these, like, you know, you had this weird expectation and, and reality turned into something very, very differently. Well, Samson's story starts out with massively high expectations, but the story that follows is just a train wreck. Let's look at his, his birth story uh, chapter 13, just, just verses 1 to 5 here. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Minoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have borne no children but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful to drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Oh, talk about expectation. This is going to be a great deliverer. A unique birth story, Not, nothing like this in the book of Judges yet. Nothing like this since, since like Genesis. A, a, an angel messenger coming to a barren woman and saying she's going to bear a son and he's going to be set apart right from the womb. High expectations. If we just look at a few of these verses, verse, verse 13 and 1 says, it reminds us of the continual decline of Israel's spiritual state. They again, again, did evil in the sight of the Lord. So, so God gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. And we're going to find out in a few chapters that Israel was quite fine with this. In fact, they go to Samson and say, what are you doing? Don't you know that these people are ruling over us? Just, you know... Cool your jets because we're just, we're okay with it. 
They're under Philistine rule, even though they're in the promised land. Then we get into this message from the angel of the Lord, and there's this thing, and be careful that, that he tells the mother, careful not to drink any wine or strong drink, nor eat anything unclean. And no razor should touch his head because he's going to be a Nazarite. And all this goes back to Numbers chapter 6. There's rules for the Nazarite there. But the angel also reminds her of a very basic dietary restriction for all Israelites. And the words here are strong. Therefore, be very, very careful to not eat anything unclean. This, this is, again, a little hint as to how far Israel has gone away from God's law. Because she had to be reminded about basic dietary issues for Israel and their set-apart nature. So God is going to save his people through a promised deliverer. He's, he's announced this unique birth to the mother, and, and the father, you know, if, if you read on in chapter 13, he's not too sure about this. He tries to take control of the situation. Uh, the, the messenger of the Lord actually only speaks to the mother in this whole thing. But there's a glimmer of hope in this dark time of Philistine oppression. Somebody is going to come up, one dedicated to God, and he is going to begin, circle that word, begin, to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. We're not sure how he's going to do that yet, but hopes are high. There's a glimmer of hope in a very apathetic time. If you turn over to chapter 15, verse 11, you get this, 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft in the rock of Edom and said to Samson, do you not know that the Philistines rule over us? What is this that you've done to us? You're, you're creating a problem. These people rule over us. Don't, don't create any tension here. Don't create problems for us. And so God is raising up somebody in an apathetic time because Judah has begun to be content with being ruled. But God has to raise up a deliverer, but it will only be a beginning. He will begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Well, the story goes on. Chapter 13 is all about Samson's birth and about his parents and how they try to figure this out. And at the very end, the last verse, it says, And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir in him at Mahanaim Dan between Zor and Eshtol. Well, what happens next? Verse, uh, chapter 14, 1 to 9. Samson went down to Timnah, and in Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to them, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines that at that time the Philistines ruled over Israel. 
Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward him, roaring, and then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion to pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. After some days he returned to take her, and as he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion, and behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on, eating as he went, and he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate, but he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. Well, that's a very interesting little story. What is going on here? God, second point here, God will save his people through a flawed deliverer. A flawed deliverer. There, there are really only two geographic locations mentioned in Samson's story, Timnah and Gaza, both of them Philistine strongholds. He doesn't spend any time in Israel or with Israelite people. He's always with the Philistines. He's always hanging with the Philistines. He sees this daughter of the Philistines. He wants to marry her. That doesn't work out. We'll see that in a minute. And so later on, he goes to Gaza, and he has a fling with a prostitute. And then he meets Delilah, who isn't the same person as the prostitute. She's a Philistine, and she turns against him. Like, he has no interest in Israel at all. He's only interested in himself. It's interesting. Samson's first act is to reject his parents' authority and the authority of God. That's the first thing he does. He goes down, sees his daughter of the Philistines, and says, That's, she is right in my eyes. Remember that, because that comes up later in the book. And the word for right there is straight, right, upright, righteous. Like she's, she's, she's fine. It's okay for me to marry her, even though God's law says don't marry into the Philistines. And his parents even say, hey, isn't there like an Israelite? Nope. He's like, nope. And they don't like it, but he doesn't care. He doesn't honor his father and mother. So his first act is to reject his parents' authority and the authority of God. Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. We go over to chapter 17. This is the story of Israel. After the judges. Chapter 17, verse 6. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And 21.25 repeats exactly the same phrase again. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in in his own eyes. <clears throat> so this is the first thing, this, this whole, he's marrying outside of, of Israel, he's rejecting his parents' concerns, and he's disobeying God's law. 
Well, this other thing that's weird in here too is you get this thing with the, with the young lion. So this young lion jumps out of the bush to attack him and we don't know why, where this comes from. You know, is God doing something here? But the spirit of the Lord rushes on him and he rips this thing apart as you would a young goat. Like all of us should know what it's like to rip a young goat apart. But that's kind of what the text is saying, right? He ripped the, you know, I, I don't know. I read that and I went, that's kind of funny. Like, I, I should know how ripping a young goat apart is, is so easy. I don't know. You got young goats yet at the farm? No. He's, he's. <laughs> Any idea how hard it is to rip? No. <laughs> Jeremy's like, Todd, that's just weird, Doug. Don't ask me that. Killing a lion, eating honey from the corpse. Like again, there's got to be something God's doing here because a, a lion doesn't just dry out. Honeybees don't, don't, don't make hives in dead animals like they do, just don't. But, so God is up to something here. But, but look what Samson does. He goes back to check this out because he's like, oh, wow, this is cool. I killed a lion. <laughs> hey, look, there's honey in it. And it grabs some of that. Okay, so here's, here's a, a standard rule. If you go back to Leviticus, touching a dead corpse makes you ritually unclean. And you've got to go through a whole cleansing process. For a Nazarite, doubly so, he was supposed to, at this point, having even killed the lion, gone to the tabernacle, shaved his hair, made sacrifices, and gone through a whole cleansing process, and then renew his Nazarite vow. He does none of it. Doesn't tell anybody about it doesn't care about God's instructions. Now, you might say, well, did, did, does he even know all of this? Because all this was told to his mother. Maybe mom and dad didn't pass on what he was supposed to do. Or, Well, you get to the very last time that, where he finally tells Delilah, and he says, I've been a Nazarite from birth. He knew all the time. He knew all the time. Killing the lion, eating the honey from a corpse, complete disregard for the standard set by God for him. And he, with this, then he takes this honey and gives it to his parents and defiles them as well. Anything that touches a corpse is defiled and anything that touches that thing is defiled and it kind of goes down a few layers. So now his parents are ritually unclean. He is ritually unclean. He has broken his Nazarite vow on a number of levels, and doesn't care at all. Sorry, I'm ruining Samson for you. But look at this interesting verse in 14.4. God is working his purposes. His father and mother did not know it was from the Lord, for he, the Lord, was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Samson doesn't fulfill God's purposes because he chooses to walk in obedience. God works despite Samson's flagrant disregard for his holy vocation and God's law. What Samson does in and through his life is he creates tension and conflict, but he doesn't resolve it. God is using Samson in his stupidity. I've actually found commentators that actually said that, Samson's the stupidest judge you can find. 
like, this is like Bible scholars. <laughs> He's stupid. <clears throat> but God is confronting Israel's complacency and creating a conflict with the Philistines that won't get resolved until David. But right now, they're quite content to just let the Philistines rule them, and God's starting to poke at that. Create tension, create conflict. That's how God is using Samson's lust and passion and self-centeredness, because that's really all Samson's about. God will save his people through a flawed deliverer. The third thing we see, we flip to the end of his life, is that God will save his people through a vengeful deliverer. So you've got Samson's marriage, this falls apart and, and things go south and you get to the end of chapter 15 and Samson prays once and then you get into chapter 16 and we find the second prayer of Samson. But by this time, he has visited a prostitute. He's really in love with Delilah. She actually isn't in love with him. She quite easily is, she's more interested in protecting her people than her lover because she takes a great amount of money and says, okay, I'll find out, I'll bug him until he tells me the secret of his strength. And finally he does, and finally he is defeated. Start in 16 and verse 20, and she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he woke from his sleep and said, I'll go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison, but the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. So, Throughout Samson's whole life, if you read the whole story from 13 to 16, passions rule his life. He tries to marry a Philistine, though it doesn't work out. He visits a Philistine prostitute in 16, 1 to 4. He falls in love with Delilah, another Philistine woman who's more, more loyal to her people than to her lover. And Samson, interestingly, what, what we find here, too, is that in all of this, they're trying to find out how to defeat Samson. There's this, but, but he's always betrayed. His, his first wife betrays him, even though they don't quite get to the marriage thing. And his lover, Delilah, betrays him as well after she finds out the source of his strength. Samson's strength, interestingly, if, if you read through the Delilah story, it was a complete mystery to the Philistines. So yeah, you remember all the coloring pages with big, strong, muscular Samson. I don't know, maybe he was just a small guy because it wasn't Samson's muscles that gave him strength. It was the Spirit of the Lord that rushed upon him. I think this is the only time in Scripture where we read this, like the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon somebody. It's kind of like a violent takeover. But Samson's strength was a mystery. They had to enlist Delilah to tease out the answer. It wasn't obvious. It wasn't external. 
that they finally get at it, and it's actually when the Lord leaves him that he is weakened. And so they seize him and gouge out his eyes. Interesting that it's, it's that detail that's chosen to be brought out here because what's got Samson in the most trouble so far? She was right in my eyes. It's all right in my eyes. It's every, what I see and what I want. And here's Samson, the last of the judges. And it's been a downhill slide with each of them. And he is the worst. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon their God, verse 23, and to rejoice and say, Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God, for they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country, who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson that he may entertain us. And so they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. And they made him stand between the pillars, and Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there, and on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. Why does Samson want to be empowered one more time? For himself. He's in a pagan temple and they're mocking God, but he's only concerned that his eyes got plucked out. Again, Samson's just a self-centered guy. <laughs> it's all about him. Samson lived, and he now dies with the Philistines. His last words are, let me die with the Philistines. He is one with them in life, and he is going to be one with them in death. Samson is the judge with the greatest potential, but does nothing consciously for God. Daniel Block, in his commentary, notes this. In the concluding note, the narrator acknowledges the significance of this act. And it's this, and then he bowed with all his strength and the house fell upon the Lord's and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. So Samson was of more use dead than alive to God's purposes. And Daniel Block continues, in his death, Samson killed more Philistines than he had slain in life. In popular circles, at least, this statement is generally interpreted as a vindication of Samson. While he may have wasted his life, in the end, he does indeed begin to deliver Israel from the Philistines, but the narrator's comment should not be interpreted as a compliment. It is a tragic note. This man, with his unprecedented high calling, with his extraordinary divine gifts, has wasted his life. Indeed, he accomplishes more for God dead than alive. So here we have the story of God who 
you know, think back to the great expectation. This, this son, you're going to have a son. He's going to be a Nazarite from birth. He's going to be set apart from God, for, for God's purposes. Oh, the expectations and oh, the disaster that followed. God raises up and equips a leader to serve his people, and all he does his entire life is serve himself. He completely ignores God's leading and purposes. He lives a self-centered, self-serving life, self-absorbed death. What is the redeeming nature of this story? I mean, I read through this and I'm like, okay, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired of God, useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. What's the gospel story in this? How is this good news? See, not all stories in the Bible are there to instruct us on how to live. Some are actually there as negative examples. I think Samson's a negative example. With all the resources God gives you, with all the purpose he may put in your life, don't use it for self. Samson's life is a tragedy. The most gifted judge does the least. He squanders it. Like I said, you, you, you find this phrase when, when Samson is given this great strength of spirit rushes on Samson to empower him for a brief moment, and then it's gone. Imagine having that kind of strength to rip apart a lion, catch 300 foxes, carry massive wooden doors 40 miles, bring down a stone temple with your bare hands. The Spirit of God provided Samson with strength by rushing upon him. God took over and empowered Samson, whether he wanted it or not. How much power and potential do you and I have? What has God called us to for his purposes? And do we have anything even close to the power and strength of Samson? Ephesians chapter 1. 19 to 20. Paul is praying for the Ephesian church. And he says, I pray, and start in 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. that we may know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us. In Romans chapter 8, Paul talks about the spirit that God gives those who follow him. And he says this, Romans 8, 9 to 11, You, however, are not of the flesh, but of the spirit, in the spirit, 
if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, not rushes on you, but dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although your body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. Wow. How much power is there in the Spirit of God that dwells in you? The Spirit of God rushed on Samson to do amazing things. The Spirit of God dwells in us to give us life. So what do we do with that much power and potential? God sets us apart as his children. That's the next part of Romans chapter 8. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You received a spirit of adoption as sons. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits. We're children of God. If children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. In this passage of Romans 8, how much has God given us as he has given his Spirit to dwell in us, to be with us? Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will send another, a comforter, who will be in you, who will be with you to lead and guide and teach you, remind you of all I have taught you and lead you into all truth. How much power and potential do we have because Jesus sent his spirit to dwell in us? And what are we going to do with that potential that God has given us for our lives? May we resist as Samson couldn't or wouldn't to just do what seems right in our own eyes. What has seemed right in your own eyes that has distracted you from God's words and purposes? If there's anything that Samson's story should call us to, it is to call to repentance and a return to God's purposes. See, we're all in some ways living flawed and broken lives, yet God still uses us and he continues to call us to repentance, a turning away from doing what is right in our own eyes and turning our lives over to his leadership. God worked despite Samson's failures. He, he used Samson's failures, but he, he wants to live in us in fr- so that we can live in freedom and forgiveness and fellowship with him so that we can declare the glorious grace that he has towards us to the world around us through how we live and what we say. Samson's story is a tragedy. This most gifted judge, he has has more going for him than any of the other judges, but he does everything to serve himself. God has given us his spirit to give us life, to empower us to live today with his power in us, always, 
to dwell in us, not to rush on us. A spirit that just cries out from our hearts that we're his children. That should really change our lives. If we really understand that God sent his spirit to dwell in us, then everywhere I go and everything I say and everything I look at and everything I touch and say and, and do, I'm taking God along with me. So that what I watch, what I do, God's with me all the time. And he sees what goes through my eyes, what's in my heart. Yes, we're flawed. We can't deliver ourselves from that flaw. We need a perfect deliverer. We need Jesus. Samson was used in his heart of vengeance to begin to deliver the people from the Philistines. But God saves us fully, not through a vengeful deliverer, but for one who lays down his life for his sheep. If there's any parallel between Samson and Jesus, it's that Jesus is the opposite. He gave his life for us. And he gave his spirit to live in us. He is the self-sacrificing deliverer. He is the perfect deliverer. He is the promised deliverer. And he gives us his spirit to dwell in us so that we would know that we're children of him. And yes, we all in some ways live flawed lives. And so we need this reminder as well, because in many cases we're living lives similar to Samson. We do what is right in our own eyes. We have our own agenda. And we need to hear that... A life of repentance is necessary. 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 and on. This is the message we heard from him and proclaimed to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another in the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word... In him, truly, the love of God is perfected. 
By this we may know that we're in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Let's pray. Lord, this morning as we consider the life of Samson, we see a man ruled by his passion and his lust and his eyes. And he only finally, in kind of in a half-hearted way, turns to you when he loses those eyes. Lord, may we turn our eyes upon Jesus instead of all the stuff that looks right to us. Lord, may we not squander the the immense gift that you have given us with the indwelling of your Holy Spirit that gives us life and breath. Lord, you have given us so much freedom to come boldly to the throne of grace and find help in our time of need through Jesus Christ. You have made us alive when we were dead in sins and transgressions. Your Spirit made us alive in Jesus Christ. And we are your workmanship created in Jesus Christ for good works that you've prepared for us to walk in. And so, Lord, help us to live the life you've called us to in the power you've given us for your purposes so that your name may be glorified and that all people would see that it's Jesus, it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Father, we see this example of Samson who draws all attention to himself. Lord, may we live in such a way as to draw all the attention to you. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.